0: Well, it is a real pleasure for my family and I to be with you this morning. Um, We were honored to have Jacob and Noah with us uh, in Macedonia this summer, and look forward to having uh, maybe many more of you coming in subsequent summers, maybe this summer. Um, But I do also want to say something else with all sincerity. Um, I suspect that 10 summers could go by, and while we anticipate encouragement from all of those visits, Uh, probably the vast majority of you will still be here, uh, praying and giving and supporting from afar. And so I just want a a special eagerness to meet you. Um, It's really, in many ways, because of you that this trip has happened. Um, We would love to meet you. Um, In the not-so-distant past, it would have been unheard of for missionaries that far away to make a home visit, you know, just like this. Um, We consider it a grace from God that we can see you uh, face-to-face and breathe some of the same air, uh, hear some of our kids laugh together, maybe cry together, um, get to know each other. Um, But clarification on the get-to-know-you part, um, as I've done a few trips like this, I've modified my expectations a bit. Um, I really wish that we could all hang out, like really one-on-one, but like at least a few on a few, you know, for a couple hours and and really get to know each other. I know that would barely scratch the surface, but at least we would, we would scratch that surface and have some quality fellowship. Um, as it is, uh, things are a bit lopsided. There are only a few of us and a lot of you and very little time. So that's the cup um, half empty, right? But here's the cup half full. Um, we actually have, in a way, been talking for a while now, uh, maybe not face-to-face, not with everyone, uh, but definitely ministry-to-ministry. Uh, you have been praying for us, you've been giving to us, you've been visiting us. Uh, we have been blessed by you, and uh, though we would like to be here more often, um, here we are with you. So I, I have a question for you. How would you describe the nature of our relationship with one another? Maybe it's not a, a one-to-one, but it's definitely ministry to ministry. So what is, what is the foundation? What is it that ties Loudon Valley Baptist Church to the Snyder family and the missionary team they represent in the Balkans. Well, well let's do a little DTR. Do people still say that? I don't know. Um, I could use probably more than one example for this, okay? But I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use your pastor, Jacob. Okay, Jacob and I, we go back a ways, right? He mentioned that. We were both students in PHC uh, during our days in Guilford now Sterling Park Baptist Church, we became really good friends. Um, I was around when he met Janice, stood in his wedding. Uh, I've really enjoyed the extent to which we've been able to keep up that relationship over Skype and visits, etc. So let me be clear about something. I consider it a huge blessing to get encouragement and counsel from your pastor. And I thank you for the many ways in which you've freed him up to be a ministry to me and to the work in the Balkans that we're doing there. So thank you, and I thank God to have a friend like Jacob. And I don't have any evidence to suggest that any of you think like this, but if I was a cynical outsider, I would connect the dots in this way. Oh, old friends helping each other out. That makes sense. And that does make sense if you think about it. Relational history helps with communication and it helps with trust, right? But I don't think that is the foundation of our relationship. I actually think the foundation of our relationship is much closer to your heart than that. So what about what about Sterling Park? That would be the next thing to bring up probably. That's, that's a name of a church that's familiar to many of you. Uh, God has blessed that church and made it a blessing to others. A church where, though for obvious reasons things are a little different for us, uh, Amira and I are both members. They've sent us out with their blessing and support. And Sterling Park has been a blessing to this church as well. It's been a place of growth and commissioning for your pastor, a continuing, continuing source of encouragement. And many of your faces are familiar to me from a time that we covenanted as church members together over there. Again, I don't have any evidence to suggest this. But if I was a cynical outsider, and you think, who's this guy? Who's this outsider? Anyway, if I was him, I would connect the dots in this way. I would see mother church, baby church, do what mama does. Okay? That makes sense. And that, that does make sense. Trust and communication. Again, when you're looking to support people, going on the recommendation of another church that you already trust and, which, and with whom you already share a wonderful doctrinal alignment at least considering some of the same global mission choices that they've made, that makes a lot of sense, right? But that is not the foundation of our relationship either. The foundation of our relationship, I believe, is so much closer to your heart than the friendship I have with your pastor and much stronger, much more enduring, and much more compelling than taking missional cues from a mother church. How much longer can he make this go? <laughs> longer. Because as the Lord would have it, what I understand to be the foundation of our relationship and ministry, and the foundation for a whole lot more, let's get that straight, is laid out in our text this morning in Luke 5, 1 through 11. So if you could turn there, or look at the screen, or whatever you do, I'm actually going to forgo answering how I see the foundation of our relationship until we, we look at our text. So if you've been If you're new here this morning, um, or have uh, not been able to make it in here for some time, uh, Jacob also mentioned this. Uh, He's been preaching through the Gospel of Luke, and this passage is the next in that series. So if you were here last week, or listened to the recording, as I did, uh, you may recall Jacob highlighting what Luke highlights in those verses, the authority, the identity, and the purpose of Jesus, with special attention to the authority of Jesus. Well, today, we get a call in our text. A call where Jesus takes some of his authority and some of his identity and some of his purpose and he places it in front of a human sinner and then tells that sinner how to respond. So let's let's hear now from Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It reads, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that's Jesus, And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So the first few verses give us a little background. Um, It says, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. So first off, Luke is telling us that this is a real story, but he's also telling us he's not attempting to arrange this and the other stories surrounding it in any particular chronological Order. Um, and also, Lake Nesaret is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. That seems to be the name that Luke prefers for that body of water. And Jesus is preaching the Word of God. Another acceptable preposition would be Word from God. So that would be another way that you could translate that. We aren't given more information than that, but it's, it's certainly interesting. Uh, you know, we, Jesus is not holding a Bible in his hand like you might see me doing this morning. Um, he was probably quoting from memory or just speaking his own words. But especially since we saw such a strong passage about Jesus' authority last week, it's interesting that you could translate that word from God so that by the end of his talk, if you're the people on the, on the shore listening, what Luke is trying to convey to you is that they're, they're listening to God. They're listening to the word from God. And it's a little ambiguous, but it's also clear that when Jesus is speaking, God is speaking. That's, that's the level of his authority. It could be read like that. In any event, the crowds are very interested, okay? and they're pressing in on him. And Jesus is gradually backing up with his back to the lake, and as the crowds uh, try to hear this authoritative teacher, he looks around, and he sees that the night fishermen, they're hanging up their nets for the, for the day, and uh, he gets into Simon's boat, later more, more famously known as the Apostle Peter, a boat that was probably 20 to 30 feet long, um, and he sits down and he teaches the people. We aren't told how long the teaching was. I'm thinking hours, not minutes, but it doesn't say. And then, in verse 4, it says, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon. And this is where our story takes off. I struggled with labels uh, for, the next, for the next points. Um, every time I, I came up with one, I either said more than I meant to say or something ridiculous. Uh, but I do have three words. Okay, because I think these are the three movements of what happens in our story. Um, we have something social, and then we have something personal, and then we have something global. That's what, that, that's what seems to happen in the story, the interaction between Jesus and Peter. So something social, uh, something personal, and something global. So what does Jesus say in the other half of verse 4? He says, uh, put out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. So there are two commands here. It doesn't really come across in English the same way, but one of them, the first one's plural, singular, and the second one is plural. So the first one is put out into the deep Peter, and the second one is y'all let down the nets, which doesn't add that much because Peter answers next. He's the guy that Jesus is talking to. But it does give us maybe more of a perception of how big a task this was. Um, I don't know how many of you are fishermen, okay? I liked to lake fish and stream fish. So the biggest net that I've ever been in contact with is the kind that you buy at Walmart and looks like a tennis racket with a really loose webbing on it, okay? That's my fishing net image, okay? But we have to adjust that a little bit, and, and actually a lot of it, because uh, this isn't even just the, the fishing net that maybe you would just toss something the size of a tarp off the side of the boat with some bricks on it. It was actually three, three nets. It was a set of nets, and I have no idea when I read the description how these actually operate. But you had two looser nets on the outside and one finer net on the inside. And this was, a, as we just read, it was an all-night deal for these fishermen to set out these nets and have them ready to catch these fish. And the whole night produced nothing for them in this, in this time. And so Peter says what he says. And what does Peter say? Well, he says, Master, We toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. Now, I would think that tone of voice would be kind of important here, right? Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Because uh, tone of voice could change the meaning of this a little bit, depending on what tone we used, right? I could say, I could use my silly boy tone of voice and be like, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. But, well, okay, at your word, I'll choke down the net. You know, it would just be kind of a pride thing. It could be an annoyed thing. He could be using his angry voice. he be like, we just cleaned the nets. We folded them. We put them away for tonight. We've been working all night. And then I sat on my boat, and I listened to you preach for hours, and I want to go to bed. But at your, at your word, I will put down the nets. Okay? I actually, I actually personally don't think it's either of those. Okay? I think that... Peter is using his do you really want to do this tone of voice and this is why if you, if you uh, remember the passage from last week what did Jesus do for, for Peter's mother-in-law he, he healed her from a, a fever right this isn't the first time Peter is interacting with Jesus and, and in a way for whatever reason Luke included in there he's a doctor so maybe he you know, it was an interesting case for him but he, he included in there that Peter kind of owes Jesus he, he is in Peter's life He's not just a random guy that walked up and said, hey, can I use your boat? He's like, okay. And it turned out to be a bigger commitment than he thought it would be. It, it wasn't like that. In fact, when he says master, this is a term of respect. Okay, He is not looking for, for Jesus to you know, take his advice and not do something or just hear the tone of my voice, how silly that is. He's not doing that. I think that Peter is actually saying, look, you, you're kind of a, a big deal right now. Did you notice that, like all these crowds? It's like, you healed my mother-in-law? I will do whatever you want. But in my world, you don't catch fish here at this time of day, and it's not gonna look good for you, or for me, or for you, if we go out there and we put down these nets, and you don't catch anything. I I think he's just giving Jesus a little heads up about the way the fishing world works so that he doesn't embarrass himself and everyone else. But weather. Peter is pushing back on Jesus with his expertise, voicing annoyance, or as I tend to think, helping Jesus avoid a situation that would be embarrassing for everyone involved. We see Peter serving Jesus out of a sense of social obligation. Peter is serving Jesus out of a sense of social obligation. He he obviously doesn't know exactly who Jesus is, but Jesus is somebody to him. Jesus is in his world. He's in his social orbit, and he has a place there, and it's actually very high. He's, he's willing to undo all the cleaning up they did and do whatever he wants to do. And so he, he does it. But this sense of social obligation, leaving it there, that's about to change. And that is when we see something personal happen. So in, in verses 6 through 7, we read that there's a huge catch, right? The nets are holding more fish than they have ever held. Another boat comes to help. The nets are breaking. The boats are sinking under the abundance of the catch. And what does Peter see? Does he see a boatload of money? Because that's what fish were to him. Does he see his equipment at risk as they struggle to bring the catch in to shore? Does he see a fisherman who was just showed up by a teacher? No. No, actually, he sees Jesus. He sees something of who Jesus is, and he falls to his knees and says, "Depart from me, for I am a sinful man." And then notice, he doesn't say, "Oh, Master," he says, "Oh, Lord." Sometimes we say in evangelism books or whatever. We say, yeah, people have to see their sin before they see their need for a savior, right? Have you heard that before? I've heard that a lot. And that's true, right? And the Bible, I can't argue with that. I think the Bible bears that out. Um, So I'm not going to try to argue against that. But let's at least notice the change in order here in this passage. It's not, hmm, I've been thinking about myself lately something I am prone to do. And you know what? Those Christians are right about me. I hate to admit it, but I'm a bad person. What am I gonna do about this existential crisis? Well, I'll go to Jesus. No, it's not at all like that, is it? That's like the opposite of our story. Peter, Peter doesn't see himself and then see Jesus. No, he, catch, he catches just a glimpse just a glimpse. We know that he's going to learn more. But he catches just a glimpse of who Jesus is. And then he sees himself. And he's undone. Has that, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever seen Jesus in that way and then saw yourself and then been undone? It's, it's happened to me. It's happened to me more than once. Uh, in fact, a major turning point in my life Uh, When Jesus got into my boat, so to speak, and gave me just a a glimpse of who He was, it was it was here, not too far away, 2005, campus campus at PHC. Uh, Jesus didn't give me a boat full of fish; Uh, He gave me the death of a friend, and that that shook me in a way that made me see who Jesus is, and then I saw myself, and then I wept. because I was a student that had charted three imaginary courses for my life and I, that I thought would be cool, and uh, I was just waiting. I was waiting for God to put divine approval behind one of them, right? But not that night, on the floor after hours, in the basement offices of Oak Hill, if you know that building. Uh, that night, Jesus wasn't in the presence of David Snyder. Uh, David Snyder was in the presence of Jesus and I was undone. Has it ever happened to you? Have you ever seen Jesus and been undone? Has Jesus ever revealed himself to you in a way, in a way that jolted you out of your social obligations to him and caused you to fall to your knees terrified? Maybe God is using the preaching of his word even now to do that for you. And if that's the case, it would be a trite thing to say that what happens next will be pleasing to you because you're starting to feel that it's actually not all about that because the person in front of you is the Lord Jesus with whom you can see no part, but there is grace. Jesus says to Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. In this way, Jesus reveals something bigger about his plan, which we will come back to. But Jesus also comforts and commissions Peter. He doesn't just say, it's been a pleasure doing business with you. I think the fish should cover the boat rent. Uh, You do you, I'll do me. The, The feeling that you're feeling right now next to divine power, perfectly normal. But I hope you'll consider a You know, this is a standard venue for my teaching circuit in the future. Your boat came in handy, and you know I'm good for it. That that was not the conversation that was had. No. Actually, if you look at Jesus now, Jesus brings Peter in way deeper than that. Way deeper than Peter expected. It's not because Peter misjudged his own unworthiness. Peter was brought in like this because the gospel is good news. That's what the gospel of Jesus means, the good news of Jesus Christ. He came into the world not to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But where do we put all that terror? Where does does the dread go? Well, it goes to the cross. The story of Luke, the gospel of Luke, isn't finished just yet. A cross is coming. And when Jesus, or excuse me, when Christians, when the Christian sees Jesus there, on a cross, he or she also sees himself or herself. A feeling of impending doom in front of Jesus is completely warranted, but it is also completely resolved at the cross of Jesus. That is where all of us who are here in Christ should hear, Don't be afraid. And the one to whom Jesus says this truly need not be. But it doesn't just stop with us and our relationship to Jesus. And that's where we get our third thing. Something global is said in this passage. The, the comfort and the commissioning comes together. come together. Did you notice that? He says, Don't be afraid. From now on you will be fishing men. And fish men, Peter did. In the opening chapters of Acts, also written by Dr. Luke, we see Peter preach and thousands come to faith in Christ. By the time you get to chapters 10 and 11 in the book of Acts, an exchange arranged between Peter and a man named Cornelius, this begins a mass turning of the Gentiles to faith, from death to life, from the world to the saving nets of Jesus. And Peter was part of that, a big part of that. And it wasn't seeking Peter's greatness or to make a name for himself. That, that was Peter doing what Jesus asked him to do. And it may be that the early church needed to hear this because, spoiler alert, chapter 22, Peter denies Jesus three times. Now, some of us know that, and we've dealt with that, but that was a big deal. That was a really big deal. For one of your main leaders in the church to have denied Jesus three times? Can you imagine being a new convert? They sit you down and they say, look, you're a Christian now. You follow Jesus with your whole heart and your whole life. Some people don't like that. There's a good chance that someday one of them will kill you. But that's who you are. You stay true to Christ to the end. And then you hear, what about him? What, what about Peter? Like, he denied Jesus three times. At the moment where he really needed to be strong, he was not. So what is this you're telling me right now? Well, what is it that Luke is telling us right now in the verses that we're reading? Why point this out? Well, because something interesting happens to Simon's name in the story. Luke introduces him as Simon, right? But in verse 8, calls him Simon Peter. Now, in Luke 6 14, chapter a few pages away, to be preached in weeks to come, Luke remarks that Jesus gave Simon the name Peter. So, along with Peter changing his posture towards Jesus from master to Lord, Luke seems to be signaling that that falling down before Jesus, this outward expression of deep unworthiness, this is the apostle that Jesus took on board. Peter knew who Peter was. And here's here's the striking part. Jesus knew who Peter was. And I think if you're reading this as as a recent convert in the early church, you're hearing that. You're hearing that loud and clear when you see the name Simon Peter. Peter didn't appoint himself nor was he growing his own ministry in future chapters. Jesus appointed and commissioned Peter to be fishermen of men and of women in the global ministry of Jesus. So a lot more of that plan is to come, right? We don't see everything here. There's the coming of the Holy Spirit. There's the the believers in Jerusalem, the believers among the Gentiles, the churches that are planted. The churches that will have a role in the preaching of the gospel, in the, in the imaging of the gospel, in the discipleship of new believers, that's, that's all to come and that's not mentioned in our verses. For that matter, the death and resurrection of Jesus hasn't happened yet, but it is foreshadowed by our text that the good news of Jesus is for the world, it's for a lot of fish, it's for all people in all places at all times until he returns. Matthew 28, all authority is given to me, Jesus. Now go out into all the world. Acts 1, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's the plan that Jesus is pulling Peter into. A plan that's bigger than Peter. A plan that is much bigger than Peter realizes and definitely points to Jesus and Jesus alone. But the plan also and this is an important factor, belongs to Jesus. It's not Peter's plan. Jesus is choosing to commission sinners to fish sinners. That's his plan. And that's actually why being a missionary is still a thing. I don't understand it. I hesitate to speak for him, but I don't think Peter understands it. But he doesn't need to. We see in verse 11, Peter, James and John they're leaving everything and following Jesus. And that's the end of our story. But perhaps not the end of our application. So what is the foundation for the relationship between our ministries? Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is that foundation. I love you. And I know you love us. We feel it, but we aren't—we aren't relating to each other on our own terms. That's not how it's working. In what way is Jesus the foundation of our relationship? Well, I think our text suggests two things, and I think they come together in such a close way that it's really hard to know where one ends and the other picks up. Don't be afraid. Now you'll be fishers of men. They both belong in the foundation and seem inextricable. And the first one is that we treasure Jesus. The second one is that we follow his lead. We treasure Jesus and we follow his lead. So a few thoughts on treasuring Christ. Peter goes from social obligation to terrifying realization to leaving everything. But from another angle, he he left nothing because he was treasuring Jesus. If Jesus is your advisor, you'll lend him your boat. You'll have a social transaction. You might even commit your life to inconvenience in his name, bearing the title Christian. And if that's where you are this morning, well, then I would say this. May God give you a revelation of the Lord through his word, even now, and grace to tremble, to see the true nature of the one who owns it all and rules it all. But I suspect, even if you know about that, even if you know who Jesus is and you've seen it, the temptation to relegate Jesus to the social realm is an ongoing temptation. There are external pressures to do that. You can see that if you walk into pretty much anywhere. You have a Christian this, a Christian that, Christian music, Christian magazine, Christian novel. But let this passage be a reminder to you that you are a Christian because Jesus said, don't be afraid. That's why you're a Christian. And that holding on to Christ as your treasure, not your brand preference, that's what you really have. Peter goes from being socially obliged to Jesus to being socially liberated by Jesus to leave everything. If you see who Jesus really is, see yourself, are undone, and put together back by him, your whole life becomes his. Not out of guilt or under duress, but because he's your treasure. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But Jesus doesn't just make it about us, does he? He is our treasure. Individually, we follow him as his disciples, but we also follow his lead, right? And by follow his lead, I mean we, we follow his lead. Maybe that doesn't come, come across when I say I'm a follower of Jesus. Because, uh, you know, making this point of application is a bit delicate, isn't it, if you say it that way? Christians following Jesus has, has developed into kind of a cliche that can mean anything from growing Christ-like in character to suffering religious persecution to not doing this or doing something else based on a piece that you have or don't have. And I'm not looking to throw rocks at any of those ideas in particular. That they're difficult things to untangle. But what, what if this? What if, what if Jesus has a plan? And he told you about it. He has a plan and he told you about it. What if, what if your growth and your treatment and how you feel actually isn't the center of that plan at all? So let's just assume you've been to the cross. You know, deep down, deeper than you've ever known, that Jesus loves you, that God loves you. That's unshakable in your heart. But now what? Amir and I were asked to share with the kids in uh, Sterling Park last week, in the evening service. It was just like a five or ten minute thing. They're like, just talk to them. And so we, we were, Okay. So we went in there, and we didn't have a really firm plan on what we were going to do. But what we ended up doing was we, we thought, well, you know, kids have this idea that missionaries do this and that. Well, let's tell them what we do. And so we said, um, we said so what do you guys want to do when you grow up? And I went around the room, and, uh, you know, different people, footballer, a teacher, another teacher, somebody wanted to be a video gamer. I didn't know what to do with that. And, uh, but then I was thinking, okay, so maybe someday some of you are going to be those things, but the likelihood is that if what you want to do puts you in contact with people and they have that thing somewhere else in the world, you could use that to tell people about Jesus. And, uh, and then we gave examples because I in Ghost of I'm an English teacher. And in Amira, everywhere is a doctor. Okay, And so we explained how that helped us talk to people about Jesus. And uh, And there's going to be some good things about that, right? Because uh, they got to know us through that. Uh, Maybe some of their future dreams, they can also dream in some ways that they can give glory to Jesus. And I hope that's how things were received. But there's a version of that that's not okay, right? Or at least a version of that in which something has to come first. If Jesus is your treasure, well, he gets to tell you what's important. He gets to tell you where your life's going to go. It turns out that, that Jesus doesn't just use individuals. He, he uses churches. And, and the Bible makes it clear that all Christians are called to, to Christian ministry in some way, or to gospel ministry. Your relationship to Jesus unavoidably involves other people and involves Jesus telling you what to do about that. Now, you might be thinking, ah, oh, I know where this is going. You're going to say that I should probably think about going overseas because that's what God wants. That's his plan. Maybe. I mean, if, if that's what the Lord's put on your heart, you should definitely talk to the leadership here and, and work through that. But if you turn the pages in Luke, you finally get to a demoniac, right? In Luke 8. Luke 8, this demoniac among the Gerasenes. He's in the Gentile lands. Jesus goes there. It's a big thing. Uh, demons come out. This man is restored. He comes to Jesus. He's by the boat. He says, I'm coming with you. And what does Jesus say to him? Not the same thing he said to Peter. He doesn't say the same thing. He says, go home. <laughs> That's what he says. He says, go home and go tell everybody there what the Lord has done for you. So I, I am not the one to say, actually, if you should uproot and go somewhere else. But I think we can say this. And this is, this is maybe the main point of this point. We can't, we can't be followers of Jesus and avoid the leadership of Jesus. If, if you're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to follow his lead, we're actually going to have to figure out the times that we live in and what he wants us to do. We're going to have to figure that out. But we're not going to figure that out if we're running boats. It doesn't happen then. The, the two things come together, I think. In our passage, it certainly does where Jesus becomes Peter's treasure. And he also follows Jesus. Not perfectly, but for the rest of his life. Towards the, uh, the end of the book of John, which we're not going to preach a whole other sermon, but in chapter 21, we have a, we have a story that's so remarkably like this story that people are a little confused by it. And uh, I don't know if, if John meant it to be an epilogue to this occasion where Peter was called, but you have the disciples out in the boat fishing. Again, people argue, why are they fishing? They shouldn't be fishing anymore, but they are. And Jesus comes. They don't recognize him at first and say, put your, put your nets down on this side. They do it. They get a big catch. Okay? Peter says, it's the Lord. He puts on his coat. He jumps in the water. He goes to Jesus. Jesus cooks them a breakfast. Peter cooks, cooks them a breakfast, and they're eating breakfast. Sometime after the breakfast, um, Jesus is talking to them and tells Peter something else about his destiny. You know, this one sounded really great. Uh, He's going to become a fisher of men. He just saw a huge catch. Whatever story you're going to make to fulfill that, it sounds great. But actually, in this story, Jesus indicates that Peter's going to die. He's going to die. And what does Peter do? He turns to the disciple who Jesus loves, who is evidently the one that wrote the Gospel of John, and he says, what about him? What it was, what's going to happen to him? Isn't that our temptation? It's, it's, it's to, to feel that, yes, I see the Lord now. He's my treasure, and I'm going to follow him. And we look up, and we're like, well, what about him? He's not doing that. So do I really have to do that? Well, what, what did Jesus say to Peter? He said, what is that to you? Follow me. For sure, this, this passage has a lot to do with giving up our own plans and being part of the plans of Jesus, which includes being in a church and being part of a group. But I think maybe the, the strongest point it makes is into our individual hearts, where, where Jesus says, What is that to you? Follow me. Let's pray. Dear God, we are so grateful that you've revealed yourself to us in your word. Thank you for making us your treasure. You could have made us your judge or any number of things. You could have made us your nothing and just left us trembling. but you're our treasure. You're where we go to find refuge. You're our friend. You're also our Lord, and we take our orders from you. Please, God, uh, bless our hearts with your presence. Bless our heart with, with conviction and direction. But also, God, thank you Thank you for the direction you've already given. Thank you for the clarity you've laid out in your word as to what your program for us in the world is. And may we never cease to make much of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.